0: So how's your holidays been? Um.
1: Well, I feel like it's not a holiday. I I mean, it is, it is, but like, I don't know. It's weird to call it a holiday. But I did successfully start my Latin America trip, even though I didn't even sell. No, you didn't sell anything? I mean, I sold one thing, but not the things that I want to sell. But anyway, um. so I just got back from Bieke, um, mm. which is this island in puerto rico and like it was it was a crazy trip because i was supposed to stay there for two days and one night um but where is it in puerto rico in which part it's like right beside the main island so Mm. you know like when you fly into Puerto Rico, you fly into mm-hmm. San Juan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is like the bigger main island. And this one, you basically take a ferry. Um, so is this the
0: one in the middle? Because they have like a kind of like other island, right? Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I guess yeah. I guess it is kind of the one in the middle. It's like uh it's smaller than the main island and it's bigger than Culebra, which is this other small island that I think they got listed as the number one beach in the world um Flamenco Beach there. Um, but because they got listed there, everyone started flooding there. And I remember like when I was trying to get the ferry to Vieque, like the ferry to Culebra was super full, like all of the all of the tourists. The um, number and one also beach like in the quarter. world
0: for what? For the waves or for I mean what in what category? I think for just um, like, like chilling beautiful. on the beach. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think the number one beach for waves is in like Indonesia, right? In Rote or
0: Alor uh, For, I don't for know. For surfing? I went to uh, like this beach like deep, deep in uh, Sumatra. It's, I, I think it's often, people often like Aussie often go there to surf. What is it called? Well, I realize that I'm really. I
1: actually realize that I'm really spoiled with my beaches, um, having grown up in Indonesia. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I, I think really? we're think we're so? really spoiled. Spoiled in what way?
1: Like a lot of people say, oh, this beach is really amazing, and then I go there and I'm like, okay, it's, oh, fine. Okay, it's not that you. great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Anyway, so about Vieke Um, I was going to go there for two days and one night um, to go to the bio bay. Um, But basically, my plans got completely messed up because the friend that I was supposed to go with canceled on me last minute. Like she bailed Mm out. Um,
0: Yeah, remember you
1: told me this. (laughs) So the point is, I was going to go there for um, two days and one night, but I missed the ferry. I missed the ferry by Mm. like four minutes and actually like people were still boarding, but they just had closed the gates to where the people board the ferry. Mm -hmm. So the next ferry was in, in like two hours or something or like three hours, I guess. And by the time I arrived there, I wouldn't be in time be on time to like hop on this tour that I was going to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then this tour they I they couldn't reschedule it for the next day they they could only reschedule it for like two days later and I was almost gonna like just not go just be like okay I I'm going back who cares I'm I'm not gonna go on this like tour blah, blah blah also when I arrived in Vieques on the first day I lo- someone stole my flip-flops. <laughs> but I just felt something in me. I think when I got there, it felt really nostalgic. It was really weird. It felt like Bali to me. It felt like coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this like... Yeah, it's it's like a weird feeling. Because which the is the tropical weird.
0: atmosphere? I think, maybe...
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe it is the tropical atmosphere. I mean, it is closer to the equator and like nobody really sticks to plans and things are very like not rushed and so I, I was like okay I'm just gonna book three more nights mm-hmm. even though everything is really expensive there because they're still recovering from Hurricane Maria they're not. They're still not fully recovered. So um, things are just expensive there, and also like I think when you're in a small island, like things are more expensive yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. So because because I had nothing to do while I was quote unquote waiting for that tour to happen. I got a chance to explore on my own like I met this other solo traveler Mm -hmm. and we just hopped on a golf cart a buggy Mm -hmm. to go around the island and we went to see like the sugar mill ruins from when they had um, like the sugar mill plantations Mm -hmm. and everything and on the way like I remember on the way there a lot of people had said like you're you're gonna get lost in the military base but I didn't really expect how lost I would get. And when we got lost, we saw these like huge bunkers, like big, big bunkers of when the military used to occupy Vieques. And basically...
0: And for those who don't know, can you tell them when the U.S. occupied Puerto Rico? Yeah, so it was in the 1940s. They called
1: it Plan Dracula because the U.S. military wanted to... Um Basically, they wanted to use Vieques for um, atomic bomb like for, to test their bombing systems mm-hmm. and um, assault weapons and everything. And they called it Plan Dracula is because um, they wanted to basically like remove all of the civilians from the island, including the dead, including the ones that have been buried. They want to take it out, take them out of the island so that they can use it as just, you know, a testing ground for their weapons. Hmm. um vieques used to be like hilly and because they wanted to use it as a base they basically like flattened the whole vieques and even from the from all of the atomic bombs it actually created craters so much so that like things are underground now hmm. and it was interesting because when i was snorkeling like I could see railroads in the ocean, like fences and fences of houses and railroads mm-hmm. from the from the sugar mill and stuff in the ocean <laughs> where the turtles and stingrays are. Nice. And it's crazy to see that, like to see that with your own eyes and to see like all of these big bunkers. I think it like really gives a really visceral reaction. Like it shakes something inside of you in a different
0: way like of course they protested right like the locals protested and everything and but the u.s already there right after the spanish lost the war with the u.s yeah they're basically Mm -hmm. already kind of quote-unquote owned the country right so it's just this specific island that uh, that they want to use use as a
1: military base so those two islands Vieques and Culebra um, they wanted to use those islands as a military base but somehow the Culebra people were able to um, to resist that so they didn't end up using Culebra they only used Vieques mm-hmm. as a place to like test atomic bombs and shit um And of course, like with, you know, like a lot of army bases, there's a lot of like assault that happens on like Mm -hmm. women. So that happened in the 1940s. And then they only stopped in like the early 2000s. And there were like these protesters who protested, they were jailed and arrested for under the charge of trespassing. Wait, okay, the military base, okay, not the country, right? Yeah, I know it's fucking crazy, right? It's like, tr- like, how do you get charged
0: with trespassing your own land? Um, well, that's, well, that's another thing to discuss.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> Maybe like we should have an episode just for this. <laughs> um, all of that reminded me of our conversation with Gien Sim because. She is from Malaysia. Her family's from Malaysia. And she has written about how Malaysia, when it was British Malaya, it was used as testing grounds for Mm -hmm. Agent Orange. Um, The British tested Agent Orange in British Malaya before the US ended up using it in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And also the British tested a strategic Hamlet program which ended up being a method that was used by the U.S. in Vietnam also. Yeah. It didn't work. The um, Hamlet program did not work in Vietnam, but it worked in Malaysia, Malaysia because of like the different ethnic groups in Malaysia that make up like the, um, the Communist Party.
0: Yeah, but the most interesting thing is her ongoing project with her grandfather. Yeah, that she talked about in this episode.
1: And so her grandfather was part of the Communist Party that was resisting the British occupation, mm-hmm. colonization of British Malaya, and instead of being jailed for Jail, trespassing, yeah. he got sent to <laughs> They were Deported China. to China to his ancestral homeland, but anyway, so all of that is very interesting and i and I just remember thinking about Qian's you know our conversation with Qian while I was snorkeling and seeing well, that's not physical fun. remnants <laughs> <laughs> um no, I had a fun trip um and I'm really lucky i I'm really lucky that I got a guide who like didn't sugarcoat kind of like happy thought to have when you're diving I think it's impossible like when you see when you physically see these physical remnants of the damage that has been done I think it's i don't know it's hard yeah, to like yeah, just yeah, just yeah. like yeah. You, you you can't separate you go it to that
0: state of mind where you contemplate things. you
1: can't just separate oh like i'm just gonna look at the turtles i'm just gonna look at the stingray i'm just gonna look at the sea cucumbers no it's like it's there like you you see the houses that have been yeah. anyway
0: so should we introduce her <laughs> yes let's introduce her <laughs> Sim Chien is an artist from Singapore, currently based between Brooklyn and Berlin. For the first decade of her multifaceted career, she was a print journalist, foreign correspondent, and photographer. She was commissioned as the Nobel Peace Prize photographer in 2017 to make work about its winner, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. In 2011, she quit her job as foreign correspondent and became an independent visual practitioner. Combining rigorous research with intimate storytelling, she pursues self-directed projects in Asia and is interested in history, memory, and immigration, and its consequences. Particularly, Chien investigates the intersections between the history
1: of colonial Malaya and her own family history. In this episode, we talk about One Day We'll Understand— an ongoing excavation of histories from the anti-colonial resistance movement in British Malaya during the early Cold War. Let's hear her talk about this personal history, a taboo in her family for decades during the Cold War, and how it eventually led her back to her family's ancestral village in China from her own native Singapore.
2: Yeah, maybe we can begin by, you know, looking at some of the things that um, surround us. Um, Yeah, I know this, this is where I have some of my ongoing research around, you know, these uh, contested histories. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we're sitting here with some of the stuff. Um, there's a photograph of my grandfather, which we believe was the very last photograph of him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was given this photograph uh, when I first reconnected with the people in our ancestral village in China. And this was in 2010. The story is my grandfather was involved in this anti-colonial movement and he was arrested in the early part of what was known as the Malayan Emergency, uh, as declared by the British. And he was uh, arrested and then jailed and then deported to China, along with what could have been anything between twenty and 40,000, mostly ethnic Chinese. So they were kicked out basically by the Brits and majority were sent to China. My grandfather was very early in this, um, because
1: they were against the Brits they because were, they were
2: against the Brits,
1: and, so they were actually fighting for Malaya,
2: yeah, we can get into that later, um like the motivations and what were they after, what kind of imaginary they had of mm-hmm. a post colonial state mm-hmm. um I think that varied across the group, depending on you know education levels mm-hmm. um not everybody was ideological is is my conclusion um and so my grandfather was. Sent to China, and then quite, uh, you know, early on in the emergency, he he joined up with the Chinese communists in our ancestral village in Guangdong, and so he then became uh, executed by the Kuomintang down there, the nationalists. So right. he got caught up in two wars, basically. He right. got caught up in the anti-colonial struggle in Malaya, and then he joined up with the Chinese mm-hmm. civil war. So
1: when China. right, so when he was in Malaya he didn't associate
2: with the communists yet? Well, I think it's clear that he was a hard leftist. Mm -hmm. I think it was clear that he was socialist in his beliefs. Mm -hmm. And there's some indication that he was in some kind of village leadership role. Um, And there's some indication that he could have been part of what they call the Democratic League. But, you know, I think we have to understand that the left in Malaya was a broad church at the time. It was a I mean, pardon the the use of a religious a term, but it was a broad group of people. Not everybody was not everybody who was leftist was naturally a member of the Malian Communist Party. So I have not found a smoking gun to indicate that he was a card-carrying member of the MCP. There are some signs that he could have been an underground member, but um the family definitely still resists that narrative. Um, he was the chief editor of a leftist newspaper for only one year, but he was indeed the editor of the newspaper. And um, there were accounts of how he made anti-British anti speeches in public in his town. And um, there was one instance of someone saying that they saw that he had a gun. So, you know, what does that all add up to? I don't know. But there was never a smoking gun that he was a Million Communist Party member. But the fact is he was arrested and deported by the British for anti-colonial activism. Mm. And then he was deported to China. And, and that is very clear from the Chinese archives um, that he joined up with the Chinese communist guerrilla army unit of our home village. Mm. And he died as a, as a ranking member of that particular guerrilla army unit. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's actually memorialized in China as a martyr to the yeah. Chinese Communist Party, which yeah. is kind of really ironic because he really was in China only for five months before he was killed.
1: Yeah. yeah, if it had not been under British rule and he was part of the group that was fighting the British colonization of Malaya, shouldn't the Malay national have, I don't know, like maybe welcome these people back for having fought? The British.
2: Well, that's not how the um that's not how the cookie crumbled in <laughs> a way. Um, you know, the post-colonial state of both Malaysia and Singapore inherited the mantle of the colonial state. You know, right. its legislations, its um, racialized politics, its um its structures of society. I mean, everything was kind of inherited, and the people that came to rule Malaysia as the ruling class were the Malays, and mm. that again was. Kind of by design by the British, Mm -hmm. so no. I mean, the anti-communist narrative is something that took hold uh, in a very real way in both Malaysia and Singapore in the post-colonial states, and I would say still remains. And I think anti-communism is probably only nowadays second to anti-Islamophobia, Islam, anti, anti, you know, so-called Islamic terrorism. I think communism has served as a bogeyman in both Malaysia and Singapore up till I don't know. I want to say maybe the last fifteen twenty years when you know um, political Islam became enemy number one and communism probably receded a little bit in in its you know fear factor. But it's still very much flagged as a Wait, as a I, thing. Right?
1: Are you talking about like um, Islamophobia like
2: in the West or like no 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 in, in Malaysia and Singapore? In Malaysia, Well, I mean, at least in Singapore, there's a very real... In
1: Singapore, I feel yes, but I feel in Malaysia, like... No, of course, in
2: Malaysia, the dynamics are different. But there is definitely the narrative of terrorism. So we have to remember that the communists and the Malayan Communist Party guerrilla fighters were labelled communist terrorists. The exact words, communist terrorists, by the British from the early 1950s onwards. And then this language of terrorism kind of um, then, you know, was used very much, you know, in post-Cold War era on on Islamists, on political Islam. In Singapore, the main sort of usage of this word nowadays is on people who are supposedly influenced by IS and have designs to destabilise the Singapore state. But communism was very much the boogeyman up till, up till then, you know. Um, and I mean, as recently as 1987 in Singapore, there was a so-called Marxist conspiracy engineered by the state. Or I mean, at least the propaganda around it was engineered by the state. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So for 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 people of my grandfather's generation to be taught with the brush of communism was um, was a real thing, and and that was what led to his family trying to sort of erase him from mm-hmm. from the family history. Mm-hmm. Because I think it was twofold. one. My 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 grandmother was probably completely heartbroken that, in her words, her husband chose politics over family, mm-hmm. and. The second and very real factor was, you know, if you live in an anti-communist state like Malaysia and Singapore, you don't want to be associated with yeah. communism. It's yeah. very dangerous for you. And for the next generation, you know, it's dangerous if, if anyone did a background check. Um, I, I remember my, my father always said that in school, some of his friends would tease him and his brother that, oh, your father was a communist
0: and they found out like around 2 years after he died right
2: so the family didn't find out until 2 years after he died yeah so he disappeared and they thought he just went back to china and maybe found a new life as a right. as a school teacher or something yeah. or that's what they hoped mm-hmm. um, and then a letter came from the village um 2 years after after his death uh, to basically to inform my grandmother that uh her husband had been killed two years earlier, but she held up hope that he was still alive in in the two years that you know the two years of silence she held up hope. but um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the book which but um I made a book about my grandmother's story and and so there's an account from her oldest son, my oldest uncle, in which he describes um the day that the letter arrived from China. And he describes hearing his mother crying in the room. And he describes how, yeah, she was just very upset and distressed um, at this letter. And then he found out what the letter said. And he actually, as a 15, 16-year-old, wrote uh, in his diary that day. And I have a page from his diary. I mean, he found this diary. After all these years, he found the diary that said, you know, this is the worst day of my life. He wrote in Chinese, you know, this is the worst day of my life. And yeah, they got this letter and how he's totally crushed. And and then it ends with him saying that, you know, I want to go to Taiwan to avenge my father because the Kuomintang killed my father.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's a
2: very naive kind of thought. It's a very naive kind of diary entry, but it shows you the depth of feeling yeah. yeah, around... Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, yeah, everyone was wrapped up in, in, the, in the Cold War politics of the yeah. time. And what strikes me is... Um, I don't think my grandfather's decision is that difficult to understand. Speaking from yeah, where I sit, I guess, I I think, you know, if you lived in the time of the Cold War, mm-hmm. you had to pick a side. If you were living in Malaya, you had to either pick the side of the left or of the of the colonial colonizers. Yeah. yeah. You know, my other grandfather chose to cozy up to the Brits. Mm-hmm. So I have both sides in my family, but my fascination with this grandfather uh, uh, on my father's side is basically, you know, I I feel like this man had real conviction, and he paid with his life for his political convictions. And yeah, maybe I romanticize him, and you know, kind of um, with distance look at him with rose tinted lenses. But I kind of feel like he was a very archetypal person of his time, mm-hmm. a very archetypal Chinese intellectual who basically made a personal choice that had great political consequences yeah and I don't find that that difficult to understand in a way but of course for the family members who lived through this it's a very tragic history you know my my oldest uncle still talks about it as a tragedy you know and I don't know I think my grandmother probably so I never knew her because she had dementia by the time I was a teenager and she died when I was seventeen, so there was never a chance for me to actually talk to her about these histories. But it could be that she was just very sad and heartbroken that he left, you know, and and chose to put politics over family.
1: Yeah.
2: But again, lots of people um, suffered these consequences when it was the time of the Cold War. So when I made this book about her, it it sort of. It is about her, and it is about my family. But I do, you know, I like to think about it as a way in to examine, you know, the stories of many other women who yeah, were widowed yeah. because of the Cold War. Yes, yes, and so it's like the story of a whole generation of women actually who lost their partners mm-hmm. to, to the politics of the Cold War. So you know, yeah. it's a, I like to say that you know this story is as small and as big as mm-hmm. you can make it.
1: I mean, like with the history of the PKI in Indonesia, like it's it's all of these women who suddenly their husbands disappeared and they never heard back for yeah. a very long time. And your story reminds me of when I was doing research about the women whose husbands were either leftists or actual card-carrying PKI members. Mm. When their husbands disappeared, they they did wait for years. Mm. and many people ask them like how how do you know you know like how do you hold on to this hope like Mm. at what point do you give up on that hope that Mm. he's never gonna return Mm. um and that that is like a legit question another thing that kind of like sparked my mind was um in Indonesia, like in the seventeen forties, I believe, there were also a group of like Chinese Indonesians who tried to fight against the Dutch and like uh liberate Java. But instead of deporting these anti-colonial fighters to China, they just like massacred everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, over the years, because of that,
2: you know, um, what the enlightenment happened and people became more civilized. I mean, no, you an argument. The
1: the I think like after that massacre in the mm. 1740s, like I think maybe the the Chinese Indonesian population realized like, oh, I guess maybe it's oh. it's easier to just not try to fight against these bigger mm. ruling mm. powers. Mm. Whether it was the Dutch or later
2: on, like after the Dutch left, mm-hmm. the Javanese ruling power. Um, I do think that, I mean, it's worth thinking about, you know, what do we do with people who resist power? And one of the obsessions that I've had for a while is the deportations that took place during the Malayan emergency, this 12-year so-called state of emergency rule between 1940 and 1960, it's one of the most under-researched aspects of, of this this conflict that was never declared as a war, um, and you know the fact that we don't even have good numbers on how many people were uh, deported. I mean, the British kind of um, had different categories of kicking people out. There was the banishment under the Banishment Act, and then there were um, this there was this category called voluntary repatriation. So, my grandfather yes, went under this this, this this category of voluntary repatriation, which is also why for a long, long time, I couldn't locate his name on the deportation lists in the British because archives. He, because he... he Chinese. Uh, no, but he allegedly volunteered to leave. But mm. what kind of a choice was it, you know? I mean, the choice was between staying indefinitely in an overcrowded Malayan jail, mm. or go back to China, go back... The where you came from, mm-hmm. although half of these, at least you know, tons of these people were actually Malayan born. Yeah, yeah. So, in theory, they should be British subjects. So you know, and many of these people that I've since interviewed had nothing to do with China. I mean, they'd never been to China. They had no relatives there. Some really went crying because they had heard all about Pangshan being mm-hmm. totally cold and poor and backward and all that, and and so they were petrified to go. So I've been trying to research more and more about these deportations and I'm actually interested in, you know, how these sea journeys took place and how they link up to more historical sea journeys and as well as more contemporary, you know, sort of offshoring of people that we simply don't welcome in our our states.
1: It's interesting when you talk about, like, these Malaya-born ethnic Chinese people because, Mm. um, like, also from some of my research related to the PKI... Um, Their fathers or their grandfathers had certain relations with the the Communist Party leaders from China, but it's so impossible for Indonesians, I guess, to make those connections and trace it back, or even to travel there and talk to people, because we cannot speak the language Mm. anymore, we cannot read and write the Chinese characters
2: anymore, so... um, yeah but you know the assumption of the on the part of the colonial states was basically that these people were all influenced by mainland Chinese politics and ideology, and therefore they just kind of assumed that everyone you know was Maoist to some extent and I think in the case of malaya there there was also the thought that you know um it, at least early part, in the early part of the emergency there was the thought that um the soviet union and and China were supporting this uprising and I don't think that was necessarily true until the later part of the emergency. And then there was a second emergency in the 60s. Mm. Um, for that, definitely China was you know supporting in in both uh, training, mainly in training and sending people back mm. uh, to Malaya. But in the early part of the war, um, yeah, there were definitely relations between the MCP and the CCP. But... Um, yeah, how much of a direct help they were? I it's it's I think it's still kind of an open question in historians' minds. Um, yeah, I mean there are parallels to PKI, um, and those are interesting ones. But obviously the PKI movement was later and it was much bloodier and yeah. And but you know there's a similarity in how these histories are then not talked about and buried. In in the case of Malaya, I kind of feel like it's not necessarily amnesia. It's more what some scholars have called aphasia, mm. which is like a, which is like you you haven't forgotten it, but you just don't have the language to speak about it. Mm. And I kind of feel that that's true in the case of the Malayan conflict. We haven't forgotten it, but um, it's just that we don't have the vocabulary to articulate around it. And so the work that I'm doing is trying to find, you know, is trying to use art as a way, um, as both platform and method to unearth and to present and to re-present these memories. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm one of several artists who are working on this. There is um, Mark Tay and the Five Art Centre in Kuala Lumpur who've done a ton of work, uh, mostly in the performative space, um, around this war there are you know several malaysian filmmakers who've made um both documentary and you know fiction films around this history as well and i, I see us as a you know a, like a cohort of you know artists and intellectuals and scholars trying to chip away at the official mm, yeah. narratives around this this, this you war need,
1: you need like multiple forms of intervention it cannot just be like one yeah. form of Art or one medium. Yeah, and I—I
2: I mean, I, you know, of course, I want to be hopeful to think that art and artistic intervention can help to shape public memory, of you know, certain difficult histories, if you like. Um. So yeah, that's 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 why I keep at it. You know, it's not just about my family history. I, I think the family history was a starting point in this work, and then I kind of went on to, yeah, doing a, a, a huge kind of research and artistic project around this. One of the key sources that I'm using to make work from is um, a series of 35 oral history interviews that I did with um, mm. these people who uh, fought the British. Um, and these people are now very elderly, um, some in their 90s, and they are spread out over five territories or countries. And so I tracked them down one by one. And I interviewed them um, on camera. So I did the oral history interviews. And I also photographed the things that they kept from that time. Um, and most of them are spread out across South China, Southern China, Hong Kong. Um, there's a few in Malaysia and Singapore that would speak to me. And then there's a bunch of them, of course, exiled in Southern Thailand. They're mm-hmm. still in the so-called peace camps, East villages. Right. So I, I, I've been mostly focused on the people in Southern China Um, because there have been other people who've worked on the people in Southern Thailand, and I was more interested initially in the people who were deported. Um, So yeah, so I've collected some of those stories, and I'm using some of the things that they've told me as uh, source material for the pieces that I'm making. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be book three. (laughs) I'm making three books from this project. And so book one was about my grandmother, and it came out last summer. And then book two, this is the dummy of, Book two, it focuses on my grandfather, but it really tries to take in the the bigger story of the emergency as well. Um, and then book three is meant to be more of a historical document which deals with the colonial archive and the counter archive that I've built um, using these people's accounts, these, these anti-colonial accounts and the things that they've kept from the war. Because um, there's no archive in the world that has... Um, kind of bottled these people's stories and their things. So all I've been able to do in terms of building a counter archive is to build a, a photographic archive. I haven't physically collected these objects myself, but um, the, the thing that I could do was to make as good a photograph of their objects as I could. And so in the exhibitions that I've presented, these things are um, are, are presented on a wall with you know multiple objects Um, Is that the third book? That's probably going to be in the third book, yeah. So these are some of the objects on the other side. Mm -hmm. And you can see one of the um, objects there. That is a watercolour. You can't really see it in in the
0: yeah. Oh, the one above.
2: (laughs) Yeah, on the right-hand side, that's a watercolour by one of these um, former detainees. And that's actually a watercolour of um, a detention camp. Uh, it's uh, Saint John's mm-hmm. Island, actually Singapore. Um, so that's the guard house. That's the watchtower, basically along a barbed wire fence, and and the date at the bottom right corner of the watercolor is six six nineteen forty nine. So that was from sixth of June nineteen forty nine when he was incarcerated in this in this camp before deport, be, being deported to southern China.
1: Yeah one of the questions that i'm very interested in especially after listening to your interview with the bbc with Mm -hmm. ancha malotra um because i also read her book while i was doing Mm -hmm. research on my great grandfather Mm -hmm. and a lot of the work whether it's you whether it's ancha whether it's um people trying to make counter narratives is that the right term Mm -hmm counter narratives to to fill in the blanks of the untold stories um, from the mainstream mm-hmm. or the the known mm-hmm. um, archives is that like you mentioned in one of your other interviews it's like still using the master's tools to fix the
2: to dismantle the to, master's house yes yeah
1: and that is something that i keep wondering like is there a, is there another way to look at things where uh where we we don't have to we don't feel the need to um to document and archive everything to try and counter the narrative.
2: Um well yeah, I mean I I don't think I'm trying to make a comprehensive counter archive. I think I've been very selective about, you know, what things I'm using to tell specific bits of the story I I think you know my my background was in history, so I'm totally I'm totally schooled in the ways of respecting the archive and how that's a repository of truth, but I've come to really question that and turn that on its head in more recent years and so no, I don't think we need to have a comprehensive counter archive um and I do think that there are ways that we can um not use the master's tools, so there are parts of my work that are just you know, uh, objects from the other side without needing to refer to what's in the colonial archive. Mm-hmm. But when I said I'm using the master's tool to try to dismantle the master's house, I was referring to the fact that I, in looking at the photographic record of this war, had to rely on the, the Imperial War Museum's archive because that is the colonial um, photographic record of this war. Mm-hmm. Um, just because the fact is photography and the camera were colonial tools in a way mm-hmm. um the leftists did not have cameras or you know they had a certain rule about not photographing the within the movement um for
0: mm-hmm. good reasons
2: for yeah. you know for se- for security reasons um and I, and I've asked um several people who were in the movement why were there no photographs of their anti-colonial war efforts, because it was simply that they didn't have cameras and they acted in secrecy. So there is no photographic record on the other side. So then this war, at least photographically, was only recorded by the colonials. So then when you want to do work around the photographic record of this war, inevitably I have to rely on the colonial photographs. But I've reinterpreted them and repurposed these photographs for my use. And so that's how the intervention series happened. You know, I I re-photographed these prints in the archive and I merged Verso and Recto of the prints into one plane and I recast them as glass plates. And so I'm repurposing what's in the archive for my own telling of the story. And these two pictures that you see on the wall there are rare photographs from uh, self-portraits from the left. I mean, these are true photographs um, of Malayan anti-colonial activists and fighters who were being deported to China. And these were pictures that they took of themselves on board these ships going back to China. And this is rare. I mean, I've been trying and trying to find pictures of when, when i
1: found when i found like archives from my great grandfather's stuff and actually antara like antara is a photojournalistic yeah. um institution agency. yeah agency i showed people from antara as well and they were like oh we've never seen photographs like this mm-hmm. they said like even through their research like they've never seen stuff like that so it's always like very interesting because they said normally when they see archives of like Chinese Indonesian people, it's normally from the lens of the Dutch. Sure. Or afterwards the sure. Giovanni and sure. um to see something like that's from within the community. It's um, Yeah, from earlier
2: on it was rare, but I mean what's interesting is it's not the case in Vietnam though. So like the North Vietnamese had photographers who mm, documented. Because they their were war. in power like they had the power. No, I'm not I'm actually I haven't really studied why there's this difference mm. but yeah so somebody somebody asked me like you know why is it the North Vietnamese documented their own war much better than any of these other smaller leftist you know wars in in Southeast Asia somehow mm. I don't know but yeah there's, there's something there to, to be said for how there's a difference between the the, the countries but mm. I think in the case of Malaya it's clear to me that you know um, I've looked hard and I haven't found that many pictures of the left mm. of themselves and what I found are pictures from much later. There's a smattering of pictures from the 1960s, and then there are numerous pictures from the 80s. So we, we tend to forget because you know the official emergency period ended in 1960, but in fact, the Malayan Communist uh, guerrilla army went on fighting till 1988 89. They only signed a peace agreement in December of 89. Um, and so on paper at least, you know, it was a, obviously it was a low-grade uh, guerrilla war by that point, but um, this was a 41-year war mm. in the jungles. Mm. And, you know, on paper at least, it should be one of the longest guerrilla wars in modern history. <laughs> um, but it's just one of these like relatively unknown, um, relatively understudied kind of wars. And so I've seen pictures from the 80s, the late 80s, because they took souvenir photographs of themselves in the jungles when they knew that they were going to um, sign a peace agreement and, as they describe it, come out of the jungle. Mm -hmm. So they took pictures of themselves um, in army fatigues with rifles and sometimes, you know, um, with their arms around their leader, Jinping.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, That was in the 80s, in the late 80s already. But there's nothing... That documented their, um, you know, the actual war um, with the with the Brits. So, um, as as an artist who's trying to work with the material, um, I've had to, you know, inevitably use the colonial right. photography.
1: The, yeah, the reason I asked that is because, like, I was work. I'm not. I'm no longer working on this project, but I was working on um, this project um, about like archives, but it. It was not just because there were no formal documentation, archives, photographs, newspaper articles, but also like if, like they had been burned either by the by the people in power or by the community themselves in order to like not be traceable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I mean that that there was happened. a lot of that too. Yeah. So so it's like it's it's impossible to even fill in those blanks yeah um and I wonder which is where
2: art comes in I think because right. it's become impossible to fill those blanks in a strictly speaking academically historical way and actually I my interests have also moved on from there because I don't know that that kind of knowledge production is necessarily the most um, impactful in terms of a public memory around these around these stories so I'm yeah, so I'm less and less interested in following the letter of the law in, in, in terms of like what counts as, you know, um real and solid historical research. Um, which I can do and I was trained to do, but I I've since become kind of um less interested in that kind of in that kind of work. So so yeah, I mean there was a lot of that too in the Malayan um situation. The the documents from the Malayan communist movement um you know this was a this was an army that was on the run they retreated into the jungles of northern malaysia and then they ended up retreating into southern thailand and so along the way lots of documents were burned i'm sure lots of photographs were burned and um and then there are personal things that were disappeared because of the fear of complicity so in in the case of my family i know that um probably i don't know about in malaysia but um in china i was told when my grandfather was executed, the family in China quickly took all his stuff and either buried it or burnt it. Yeah.
1: yeah. So like these things disappeared. The PKI families in Indonesia yeah. is the same. You get rid yeah. of it.
2: You don't want to yeah. be, you know, complicit. And the other dimension of this was um, when my grandfather was memorialized in China. So this monument, this three meter high monument yeah. was built to him alone in the village the villagers and our relatives in the village sent photographs of the monument to Malaya, to his wife and mother, saying, oh, look, we've memorialised your husband. And what these two women did was rounded up all these photographs and burnt them.
0: So that was when your grandma found out that he passed?
2: No, I think it was later. It was later mm-hmm. that the monument and then they sent the photographs of the monument. Because in China, it was like a source of pride. You know, this guy was a martyr to the Chinese yeah, yeah. But in Malaya I was like, oh, no, 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 this is terrible. How can you, you know, give us evidence that, you know... So they burned the evidence. They burned the evidence mm. straight away. Yeah. So this is why then they never spoke about this man again. And my father, just in passing, one time as we we're driving through Malaysia, probably on one of our annual trips to Penang for Chinese New Year earlier on in my in my life, he mentioned in passing that his father had died in China and there was a monument built to him, but that his mother burned all the photographs that came.
0: Right. and How that, old were you?
2: I don't remember, but it was just like lodged in my head somehow. So
1: when you use the word in passing, that reminds me of like so many stories that I know that was, ended up being like these like big, um, significant stories about people that had been buried mm-hmm. in memory of their own relatives. And, um, are only unearthed in passing because the family has a dinner and everyone's drunk mm-hmm. and then there's one uncle who mm-hmm. mentioned this little thing.
2: Yeah,
1: Or because there's like a, a fight between the parents and when they say something. So everything is in passing, in passing, in passing.
2: Yeah. Because most people want to move on. Right. And I don't know if it's particularly Chinese or Asian trade. Probably isn't, but I wonder because the Chinese are extremely pragmatic and it's all about getting on with life and it's all about let's not mention these bad things mm. from the past because it gets in the way of the present and this is what Tash Ao also writes about in his in his recent book right. um Strangers at the Pier um yeah no I'm I mean there's a lot of that there's a lot of let's just get on with life and you know many people have asked me like I spent so much time digging up my family history and the stories of this generation of anti-colonial activists in Malaya like what is it for, you know? And 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 even within my own family, people think I'm a little crazy. Like, you know, why is she spending all her time and, and money do. doing this? Oh my god, they think that. Oh, my mom also thinks like, oh, what are you doing? Like yeah, when I was so asking her, they <laughs> always say like, Yo, Like, what use is it? You know,
0: mm.
2: I guess it's, uh, there's no good answer to that. it's not particularly useful in a in a strict sense. Yes, it doesn't make me any money. Yes, I put in, you know, my own savings to publish books and whatnot. But I do think it's important to understand where we came from, what what tides of history, you know, have crossed paths with our own family and with our own societies to understand not just the present but also the future. You know, I think we tend to kind of forget that a lot of the political structures that we live with have a lot to do with history. I mean, we're seeing this play out right now in Ukraine, you yeah, know? yeah, And so yeah, it's yeah. really, really important, I think, to understand and acknowledge and, and deal with these memories from not so long ago. Yeah. And my whole, you know, purpose in trying to do all this is to open up these conversations in both the former metropole of Britain and the former colonies of Malaysia and Singapore. And I do think that you know, I'm just one of many people working on Cold War histories, decolonization histories, and I think these conversations have to be had in the multiple colonies that experienced this sort of the de- you know yes. colonization, you know effort, including Indonesia, including Kenya, including so many, so many parts of the world. The, the so-called Third World went through this kind of convulsion of you know independence, you know fighting for independence, fighting the colonial authorities and all that. So I think we need to deal with these histories in our own skin. You know, it's like three scratches beneath the right. skin.
1: Yeah. There's something. It's so suppressed, yeah. So can I ask, um, if your family wanted to forget about this, what do they think about your work now and doing this publicly and sharing it to the yeah, world? So
2: I initially, there was a lot of reluctance I guess, you know, I was pretty persistent and tenacious about it. And so, my, at least my oldest uncle has come around to realizing the importance of preserving this. And so, after I nagged and nagged him, he actually wrote a 50-page family history. And wow. so, a lot of my work is based on this family history that he wrote. Because I kept saying to him, if you don't write it down, nobody else knows all this. And it's just going to go when you go. And so he became a real collaborator in this project, and I've become quite close to him because of this project. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and and so yeah, no, we have long conversations about you know both my grandmother and grandfather and the politics of this history. I mean, he he and I have very different politics. He's very much more conservative than I am, and he's one of these typical. Um, I shouldn't be so scathing, but he's he's one of uh, you know that there's many especially older yeah. ethnic Chinese people in Singapore who feel like they still um have an affinity to China and feel like they understand China and on in terms of like global geopolitics they would take the side of China. And I'm someone who spent almost twelve years in China and a big chunk of that as a foreign correspondent and a and a journalist. So I feel that I you know have some kind of understanding of China and Chinese politics and people. But these Older gentlemen will always tell me that I'm wrong, because they know better. They understand China better. So he's one of these people who have set views about China and the U.S. and the Western, the bad Western media, and we get into real quarrels about this kind of thing. But um, but in terms of like you know, unearthing the family history and the importance of doing this work, well, I think he has come around to understanding why you know, this work is important. And, and so he's supportive of it, in, at least in terms of providing information and, you know, checking and verifying things when I ask him. Um, yeah. But in terms of the broader family, you know, there's nobody else of my generation, in the family, who really are involved in trying to memorialise and research. They all got on with their lives and they think it's very strange that I...
0: Was he the one who went with you to Kaohsiung? on your documentary video yes
2: um yeah he's gone back twice with me and mm. um the whole family went actually in 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 ah. the first instance yeah, yeah the whole family went
0: but th- in that video that was the first time your father went there right
2: in the video mm. no we first i first took them back in 2010 2011 i can't remember exactly um the whole family went then but um, no we didn't film that the film was made in 2016, right. yeah. Oh, I didn't right. film the first time you went? No, unfortunately not, yeah. Mm. It would have.
0: Yeah, I, I remember you said in that video that you have to force your father to come with you to Kaohsiung.
2: Well, because they were not keen to go. There was also a superstition around the fact that um, my grandfather went back and died and then his, mm. his other relatives Yay. went back and died. So there was this superstition that any men, mm-hmm. any male members of the family that went back to the village would be cursed and would die there. Mm-hmm. So this is also why when I said I wanted to go back to the village, my father was at first like, oh, really? You want to go? Like everybody who's gone back from the, the overseas part of the family died there. And then I'm like, but I'm a girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this curse, this curse only happens <laughs> nice. to men. So I'm a woman. I'm going to go. So I went. And then I I, I kind of like forced them to come back, basically. (laughs) Because I kind of felt... I mean, when I first saw that three-metre-high monument to my grandfather, I was just completely floored. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just completely... It was a mix of shame and guilt and, you know, wistfulness and and also joy in in finding this memorial to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. It's like concrete you know yeah, it's like yeah. it doesn't get more concrete than this yeah. and he was his ashes are at the are buried at oh. the foot of it and oh. i thought oh my god yeah. he's memorialized in his village in china and we for 62 years did not come back to acknowledge this person it just boggled my mind that this would happen that you know the family overseas would try so hard to forget him when actually in china he was memorialized as a local village hero and actually he's there as well in the county level um, memorial to martyrs who fought in the civil war so he's properly in the Chinese archives and he's properly memorialized in China at least at the village and county levels um, he wasn't like some big, big name martyr by any measure but I just kind of felt like how is it we tried so hard to forget this person you know So I told my uncle and my dad and his, you know, the five of them, the five children that we have to go back and acknowledge your father. You know, this is not right. You know, and on Qingming, you know, on tomb sweeping day, we don't go back and sweep his tomb. Mm. So I tried, at least when I was based in China, to go back at least once a year. Um, I haven't been in four or five years now because I've since left China. Um, But every year, my uncle now... Makes it a habit to, um, through me, wire some money to the local villagers, uh, their, their distant relatives there, to at least clean the tomb and and make it presentable once a year. You know. Do you do you
1: think that, like you said, because of your uncle's politics that is more on the conservative side, that the way he writes about these family histories, like when he wrote the fifty page from his point of view about the family history, do you think that has a bias then? Like, has his conservative No, bias... I don't think
2: so because the the family history is very, very um, anecdotal and it's very personal. There's n- it's not very political at all. It's it's very much, you know, who married whom and did what and mm-hmm. when. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, it doesn't take in geopolitics. But the one part where it could be po- political and ideological is how he, till today, denies that his father could have been an underground million Communist Party member. This is still a source of um, contention between him and and me. Um, I mean, there's evidence that he, you know, my grandfather could have been an underground member. Like I said, I never found a smoking gun, but my uncle is quite adamant still that, you know, this and that incident shows that my father could not have, his, his father could not have been a, a Malayan Communist Party member. So this is the only part where I feel like you know, it could be somehow ideological, but for me, it's it's more academic in a way because um, I'm one generation removed from this. for For them, it was very real. It was politics that took their father away from them. You know, I mean, if you watch that short film that I sent you, um, there's a scene where my uncle and my dad describe the day that the British came to handcuff my grandfather. Yeah. I took him away yeah. down the one Jalan Bazaar and they never knew that that was the last time they would ever see their father and my 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 father describes this you know scene where he was um having a haircut in a barber shop across oh. the road and how he was too petrified to even come out and and acknowledge his father and then you know um my oldest uncle was in the house when or in the shop um the house and the shop were one because it was a shop house and so he describes how he looked through and could see from the house at the back, he could see the sh- my grandfather being handcuffed in the shop in the front. And he describes how his, his grandmother, so my great-grandmother, was pleading in Malay to the Malay officer to not handcuff him, because it's malu, yeah. it's a loss of face. Um, and she was pleading with him, no, no need to handcuff, no need to handcuff. And then um, he describes how his mother started to cry, and his grandmother started to cry and so they, the two women probably knew that this was going to be very serious and mm-hmm. the consequences were going to be lasting somehow mm-hmm. but the two boys probably did not compute at the time that that was the absolute last time they were ever going to see their father yeah my oldest uncle when he describes this scene and this day still cries yeah. I mean this is how many years after the fact and he is now an 87 year old man but he, I've actually invited him to a couple of public talks and book launches that I did in Singapore in 2015 or so. And he still chokes up every time he tells this story, even publicly, he mm-hmm. cries. Yeah. So there's something about how this trauma is embedded yeah. in his body. You know? Yeah. Um, and so for him, it is not an academic exercise, whether his father was communist or not. It is very deeply personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, you know, it's a little academic because I'm... You know, for me, it's like an intellectual curiosity more than anything else. Right. Yeah, it's not in that deep way.
0: As an academic exercise, I'm um, curious how do, how did you uh, go doing this project with um, the two conceptions of history and memory, or are they are they aligned, or are they like a separate idea that you're chasing simultaneously. Yeah,
2: no, I think mean, they are separate things. It depends. I mean, if you're talking about a, you know, like an academically endorsed history, then that's not what I'm trying to do at all now. Yeah, I'm more interested in um yeah in memory. I'm more interested also in yeah, in, I, I I mean we won't go into like the deep theoretical land of this mm-hmm. um discussion, but um there's of course a lot of um, you know, uh people who say that oral history is itself very flawed and problematic. Um, but I'm more interested in how people remember this and how the public remembers this. And so I'm not trying to create a so-called factual objective history of this war. I mean, that's the work of other people who are historians and all the rest of it. So I'm I'm not so interested in that. Um and so yeah, I'm I'm interested in individual people's stories, I'm interested in in how this conflict is is remembered and how it's written about in literature, how it's depicted in film, how it's um, played out in terms of propaganda on both sides. So that's the kind of work that I'm more interested in doing.
1: I mean, I, I have very strong opinions about people who say oral history is flawed because if you look at Southeast Asia, basically all of the histories of Southeast Asia is so much oral history because there's no, like, formal documentation is, is Formal documentation of Southeast Asian history is more flawed than oral history. I feel.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's different the schools of thought on this, but you know, the the discipline of history in academia is is such that you know there's a there's a huge um, privileging of textual documents, and that is itself problematic. So yeah, I mean, I won't go into that, but you know that that was my that was my training, that was my background, and I. I understand, you know, the need for uh, evidence finding, but um, I've, yeah, I've become less interested in that. You know, of course, these days we we are kind of um, surrounded by, you know, other people, uh, other types of scholars who try to fill in the blanks in the archives as well. And one methodology that's been popularized by um, the writer Sadia Hartman at Columbia is this notion of critical fabulations. You know, she... Um, goes into the archives, and I mean, she mainly works on on slavery, and so she's looking at the 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 stories of um, mostly uh, women in the, uh, these archives who are, uh, have a fleeting kind of trace in the archive, and then she tries to write around those mm. traces to um, to speculate, you know, what their lives were, and she tries to fill in the blanks that way. So. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone can say one method is legitimate and the other is not. It's just acknowledgement that these are different types of storytelling and that they, they serve a different function in in the world. And as an artist, I'm, you know, using that space that art affords to um, fill in the blanks um, in, in a different way than a historian to would imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Than a historian would. Yeah. yeah. My work still is very documentary in a way. Uh, I Haven't really gone into, you know, a fictional uh, space, but yeah, I'm beginning to push in a more speculative direction for sure.
0: Well, we should ask our last question. Yeah.
1: So, question is: What is your favorite
2: Singaporean dish, Malaysian dish? Oh my goodness! (laughs) Wow. Uh, That's a tough one. (laughs) It's too many. (laughs) Too many. What's your Uh, top three? Well, I mean, like, what do I miss most? When I sure. am away, uh, I think hockey and me, mm. <laughs> and um. Chendo. Ah, yeah. uh, so so oh.
1: so is Chendo Malaysian or Singaporean oh my God, for you? I don't get this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, well, you know, because my my family originally was Malaysian, so you hmm. know, I don't really have an opinion. <laughs> <but it's> like... <laughs>
0: So this is a very thought-provoking conversation that we had with Cheyenne for me Mm. because I feel like this kind of story happened throughout the non-Western countries, uh, especially during the period starting in the 19th century, since the communist ideology started to gain uh, attention and followers. Uh, Up to the 50s, 60s, 70s and the chaos. Of anti communism, and one thing that's very interesting to me is the fact that countries like Indonesia we had such a gruesome and bloody history under the Dutch colonization, right? So we saw, yeah the worst of the worst of the the colonial power. And when we arrived as independent member of the global society in the era of anti-communism, the method that we use, I mean, I can only speak of this from Indonesian perspective, I think, because that's the one I really... You know know about yeah. is that the fact that the method that we use to get rid of the communism in Indonesia is almost exactly the same with the the colonial the Dutch colonial did in Indonesia or or worse and it's very captivating in terms of you know seeing it from um from human behavioral studies that this method of grouping people Based on their race and ethnicity, it's very effective, and it's it's still here, pretty much alive. Even the the system of the 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 system of government, to a certain yeah. extent, was inherited some of the Dutch colonies' managing method. Like Jean said in the beginning of this conversation that the method is still here, you know, and it's just very interesting you know like yeah i mean in like
1: in indonesia the dutch implemented an apartheid ruling system like they did in south africa as mm-hmm. well where they segregated the different mm-hmm. race and i guess mm-hmm. in indonesia the different ethnicity um and like you see like the remnants of that today um When I arrived in Puerto Rico, I was like, okay, this this feels like Bali, this feels like Bali. But the more that I think about it, I'm like, actually, um, I wonder if it's more like Papua in relation to Indonesia. Like, Puerto Rico is to the US the way Mm. Papua is Mm. to Indonesia? Or maybe Timor? If Timor was not, if Timor did not get their independence, you know, like, I wonder if that Is the equivalent like of course you can't say the equivalent because it's it's not that simple but Mm. in my head I was like you know making uh, drawing a lot of connections that are so similar with the treatment
0: Mm.
1: yeah you know what
0: my birthday is coming up soon right so I've been thinking since like two weeks ago (gasps) you're going to Timor you're going to Dili no I was just thinking like where can I go and I looked for I looked for, I was thinking of going to Delhi and then I looked for a flight ticket from Jakarta and it is so stupid. so expensive. It's so stupid. It's so expensive, like 20 million rupiah equals to like $2,000, right? And I was like, what the fuck? And then I, I look at the details of the flight and that is the cheapest one, by the way. And then I look at the details and basically there's no direct flight from Indonesia to to uh, Timor Timor so you have to go and transit at Sydney and then go back (laughs) to go to Delhi and I was like what a waste of
1: you know yeah I mean okay so like the the conversation this is also like the fact that like a lot of people have kind of said not kind of said but like Timor got independent from Indonesia, and then in a very subtle way, like Australia took over, like mm. it's it's a different kind of occupation or it's a different whatever, do you call it occupation? I don't know. Um, no, because I guess they're not like killing people, but um, they have control over
2: Timor now. And
1: me. and also um, I'm actually curious, so like, I also really want to go to uh like Jayapura or something. Mm-hmm. And the tickets to Jayapura are also like twenty million rupiah. Yeah. I mean it's further but it's further out, but it's like it's it's not like you don't have to transit in another country. So why is it still twenty million rupiah?
0: Because it's not only FARB but also uh infrastructures also we still lacking in that area, I think there are flights but not like a commercial big airplanes you use like small airplanes which will cost you more uh so yeah i think that's understandable for west papua but for Dili, i looked it up and there's no alternative that the google provide me to just go to west timor and then go to timor timor it's just uh well I hope you make it there for your birthday. That's coming no, up soon. because after, after that, my uh, my best friend from high school texted me that he's uh, he's gonna have like a wedding ceremony, like right after my birthday. So I was like, oh, okay, let me if I go maybe after his wedding. But um, yeah, well, you'll have a lot of
1: celebrations. You have a lot of celebrations coming up. Well, for me, it's just my birthday. <laughs>
0: <coughs> no, because I'm turning 30, and I've been waiting for this for since I was 25, maybe, because I don't know, I have obsession of turning Wait, oh my god, 30. you're turning 30 this year? <gasps> right. So, it's like, let me take my time, and like, I don't know, meditate or something. But That's so exciting. Yeah.
1: Well... This means we have to do something special for Sugar nutmeg as a 30th birthday. <laughs> What's <laughs> your 30th birthday like,
0: celebration? Like launch our <laughs> website? <laughs> Definitely we're not going to make it <laughs> on my birthday. <laughs> uh, anyways,
1: in honor in honor of Ruth's 30th birthday maybe Why? not exactly on the date but uh soon <laughs> and so stay tuned and <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned
0: we have exciting things coming up all right thanks for listening and see you guys in the next piece.